Chapter 3 Jr. and I were back in Hayden, at Shay's house. I was sitting on one of the couches while he and Jr. chatted in the kitchen. Remember how Shay mentioned seeing one of the compound's buildings using Google Earth? I had the compound's approximate location pulled up myself on my laptop. I was looking at it from a satellite view. No matter how much I stared at the pixelated trees and greenery, I couldn't make out any of the buildings myself. But I did see something else. It looked like the remains of an old dirt road leading straight into the forest, in the direction of where I thought the compound was located. This forest is shaped almost like a T, a capital T. Shea's property is adjacent to the top left of that T. Toward the bottom right of the forest, there's a group of probably 10 or 12 houses. This dirt road ran straight by some of those houses. I asked Shea whether he'd ever been down the road before, and he said he had not. He didn't even know it existed. It was hard to tell from Google Earth, but it looked like the road might at least get us close to the compound. And that sure be taking the four-wheelers like last time. So we figured we'd start there. And I'm sure glad we did. That's how we found out about the FBI raid. I'm Josh Webb. And this is why they left. We found the right neighborhood without too much trouble. It was full of one-story houses and double-wide trailers. A meandering gravel road connected the neighborhood houses together. At the very end of this neighborhood, in the back corner, we found what I'd seen online, the imprint of a dirt path that diverged from the neighborhood street and led straight into the forest. We were all piled into my little Ford Fusion, and despite my concerns about my car's alignment, we started driving down the path. A few minutes went by, full of potholes and the stops to clear branches obstructing our route. Then we saw a turn off to the right. It was completely overgrown. Rather than brown dirt, the path was completely green, filled in with weeds, grass, and small trees. But you could tell it had previously been some kind of road. So we left the car behind and started walking. And within a few minutes... We saw it. The compound. Specifically the main house, the one with the office space that had all of those medical records. I told you before about how, as I've reported on this case, each discovery seems to make it simultaneously less mysterious, but even stranger. This was another one of those moments. I mean, all along, we'd never thought there was a road that led back to the compound. Discovering that there had been one a long time ago, made it seem less ominous, less sinister. But the road didn't connect the main building to all of the other properties in the compound. This road, or what was left of it, only led to that one main house. So there was one road that only led to one of the five plus buildings that made up the compound. And none of those other buildings were even visible from the main house. The existence of the road only introduced more questions. We spent the next four or five hours going through the main house and then some of the other buildings. We'd come prepared with headlamps, leather gloves, and N95 face masks. As we first stepped foot in the main house again, nearly four years after our first visit, we were worried. Worried that there might not be anything left. That time or other people might have destroyed any useful documents. That perhaps the previous inhabitants had come back and removed or destroyed all of the evidence. It was immediately apparent these worries were in vain. The house was almost exactly as we remembered it. It was as if it had been waiting for our return, all these years later. It was perfectly preserved. Though we combed through every room in the building, and the rooms in all the other buildings that were still standing, 
Most of our time focused on the office space on the third floor of that main house. That room's floor was covered in probably about two feet of stuff, and most of it was paperwork. After about five hours of this, the sun was setting, and we'd gone through nearly everything. So we piled back into my car and began driving back to Shea's place. On our way out, Shea figured it would be a good idea to go door-to-door in the neighborhood, in case anyone knew or remembered anything about the compound. It seemed feasible that this road had been the main way in and out of there, back when it was inhabited. Maybe some of the nearby homeowners had known the people living out there, or could at least shed some light on if they ever saw anyone coming or going. Most of these conversations did not lead anywhere. But the house nearest to the dirt path that led back into the forest was a different story. The house was surrounded by junk, old gas cans, tools, lawn care equipment. In the open garage, there were at least six motorcycles in varying states of disrepair. Shay was pretty sure that the man who lived here was named Skinner, and that he'd known Shay's father several years ago. We found Skinner around the back of his house. He was wearing overalls with no shirt underneath, and had an old revolver hanging out of one of the pockets. He looked to be about 50 years old, but time had not treated him kindly, so he could have been younger. Did, did you ever know these folks what lived down in this holler here? Yes, I did. Do you know anything about what's going on down there? Talking to Skinner was confusing. He's lived in that neighborhood for many, many years. He told us about not one, but several groups of people who had at various times lived out in the woods. That bunch, uh, you know, the original bunch that lived back in there, Ah, shit, they gone, been gone, and then they stole the damn place. That's people who bought it, so I'm interested in. All right, people who bought it are from Birmingham or somewhere. I, I met one of them when they first moved in there, and they say to themselves, they don't talk. It was hard to tell if he was talking about our compound or something that predated it, but then we gave him Dieter Weiss's name. The FBI got him. Now, this has been several years ago. He is from Canada. Had, That's the one, yes. He 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 was, had a Chinese wife. But anyway, that they're gone. The FBI got him. He was a damn bank robber or embezzler or something from Canada. And the FBI got him. Yeah. They stay parked over here kind of, I know, fuck it. Yeah, but after my ass. But uh, come to find out about a couple months later, they've been watching this fucker. He didn't know anything more about this, why the FBI had been back there, or what had happened after. Strangely, this would not be the only FBI raid that we learned about while reporting on this story. But back to Skinner, he told us a little bit more about how things were different in the early 2000s. Apparently, at that time, there was a locked gate that blocked the dirt road. They they come in here and leave, come in here and leave, like mostly only on the weekend. Yeah. But now I see them during the daytime, and I'm thinking, yeah, they got them a little compound or something back up there because they don't want nobody to know about it. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't stop, they don't talk to nobody or say, "Hey, can you keep an eye on our place?" It didn't like that. And uh, the gate used to have a lock on it, but I don't know if it does. We thanked Skinner and then dropped Shea off at his home and headed back to my aunt Connie's place. Jared and I tossed back and forth some theories, trying to make sense of what we'd learned. Okay, so maybe the FBI raid happened, and the doctor and the Weisses made a break for it. Or maybe after the raid, they decided they wanted a fresh start and decided not to come back to their land? Nothing we came up with was very satisfactory. Even if the FBI raid was connected to the compound's abandonment, that didn't explain what had been going on out there to begin with, or why all that stuff was just left there to rot, or why all those documents were left totally unsecured for years. 
A few days later, I was sitting on my Aunt Connie's faded green couch, doing what I'd already done at least 50 times, googling various combinations of the names we had found out at the compound. As a side note for any amateur sleuths out there, sometimes using DuckDuckGo gives you entirely different results. But no matter what search engine or combination of names and keywords I used, it felt like I had effectively hit a dead end. I was resigned to the fact that there probably wasn't much more to find about any of these people online. Though the recent discovery of the Anita's Homes medical service provider listing had provided a jolt of energy to the idea that maybe the internet was the key to solving all of this, I was coming up empty. And I was just about to give up. One combination. Charles McIntyre plus Marilyn Lockman. Anita's Homes. No results. Another attempt. Charles McIntyre, Marilyn Lockman, Anita and Dieter Weiss, Hayden, Alabama. No results. A final attempt. I don't recall exactly what I wrote. And then, an article headline grabbed my attention. Psychiatrists investigated an illegal scheme. I moved my cursor over the link and clicked. Knowing what I know now, if you want to help me figure out what was going on, pay close attention because this story is about to hit overdrive. Reading from the first paragraph of the article, quote, Two Alabama psychiatrists, husband and wife, Charles McIntyre and Marilyn Lockman, are being investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice after a Tuscaloosa doctor heard that a local nursing home was having problems with the psychiatrists who were treating residents there. I scanned through the rest of the article. Basic info on McIntyre and Lockman, their graduation from med school in Guadalajara, their residencies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, their specialization in care for elderly patients. Also, there was a little info on the lawsuit. It had been instigated by another doctor named Patrick Atkins who worked with the two of them. According to Dr. Atkins, Lockman had written a progress note, the notes doctors write when they visit patients in the hospital, dated November 29th, 2002, for a resident who had died on October 4th of the same year. Alarmed that Lockman had written and signed a note for a patient that had been dead for two months, Dr. Atkins began investigating. From what he found, Lockman and McIntyre had been engaged in a systematic fraud scheme that had raked in illegal payments from Medicare and Medicaid. The article was from 2004. From property records we found on the compound, we were fairly sure it had not been purchased by Dieter until 2005. So, putting that together, this meant that this lawsuit predated Lockman and McIntyre's time at the compound. I grabbed JR and caught him up on the article, and we talked through what this might mean. One thing we considered was whether Lockman and McIntyre might have moved to the compound in response to the lawsuit. You know, go to a small town, lay low for a while, out of the public eye. Another thing that became clear after discussing this was that we needed more information. Despite it being late, we immediately began searching, reinvigorated with this new discovery on the internet. In just a few minutes, I found the district court decision U.S. versus McIntyre. Oh, in case you're not familiar with how the legal system works in America, here's a quick primer. Certain cases are tried on the federal level. This usually occurs with either, number one, cases that involve federal crimes like Medicare fraud, or number two, cases that have been appealed up the chain from state court to federal. Once a case reaches federal court, it can be escalated several more times. Federal cases usually start on the district court level, 
there's 94 federal districts in the United States. Above that, there are the circuit courts, and there are 13 of these. And then above the circuit courts is the Supreme Court. U.S. versus McIntyre started on the federal district level in Alabama. It began there because Atkins alleged that federal crimes had taken place. The name of the case is U.S. versus McIntyre rather than Atkins versus McIntyre because Dr. Atkins was suing Lockman in McIntyre on behalf of the United States government. This is something called a key TAM lawsuit. Key TAM lawsuits permit private individuals to sue on behalf of the United States to recover money that was fraudulently obtained by a person or corporation. Sorry, that's some, uh, some legalese. Let me make it a little simpler for you. Say I know someone who started an LLC and then applied for a COVID relief small business loan with the, no intention of paying the government back. And let's say that I know firsthand that something in their application for the loan was untrue. Theoretically, I could sue this person on behalf of the United States government. And if I won, I'd get the money the person fraudulently received from the government in the shape of the COVID loan. Now that you've got some background, here's what happened in U.S. versus McIntyre. Patrick Atkins was a doctor who specialized in providing psychiatric care for elderly patients. He worked in a number of nursing homes in Alabama. Lockman and McIntyre worked in some of these same nursing homes. While he was working with Lockman and McIntyre, he began noticing some strange things. He documented that they would show up very early in the morning or very late at night to see their patients. They'd often give the exact same psychiatric evaluations to each of the patients regardless of circumstances. And then the incident that was mentioned in the article. Dr. Lockman wrote a progress note about a patient that had been dead for two months and reported that the patient was, quote, doing well, but experiencing some fatigue. How's that for understatement of the year? So Dr. Atkins started digging, and what he found, allegedly, was systematic fraud being committed by Lockman and McIntyre. Much of the care provided at nursing homes is funded through Medicare and Medicaid. So when a resident needs psychiatric care or a particular type of service provided, it's often the government that pays the bill. According to Atkins, Lockman and McIntyre were bilking the government out of millions of dollars through all sorts of nefarious activity. For example, he said supposedly that they would provide treatments to patients that the patients did not actually need. They would fill out evaluations or progress notes for patients they had not actually visited. They would charge for treatments they did not actually provide. They'd also do something called upcharging, which is when you have a couple of different options for care that you could provide to a patient and you as the doctor choose the most expensive one. In one allegation in particular, Dr. Atkins recalled that one day he'd been sent to see a patient who had been supposedly receiving regular visits from Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Lockman. When Dr. Atkins went in to see the patient, he smelled rotting flesh and found that the patient's foot was infected with gangrene. The patient was immediately sent into surgery and the foot had to be amputated. How had this gone unnoticed by the attending physicians, Lockman and McIntyre, if they'd really been regularly visiting this patient. Anita Weiss's name showed up too. Do you remember Anita? She's Dieter's wife and the sister of Marilyn. And Dieter is the one who supposedly owned the compound. Anyway, Lockman and McIntyre operated through an LLC called Yap Psychiatric Services. Anita worked on staff in their office. And Atkins alleged that she was involved in the entire fraud scheme. For Atkins, though, this was bigger than just Lockman and McIntyre and Anita. The name of the lawsuit is U.S. versus McIntyre, but the suit wasn't just between the government and McIntyre. No, the suit also alleged 
that almost a dozen corporations, which ran nursing homes across the country, knew about the systematic billing fraud taking place and were turning a blind eye. So to put this in perspective, if Atkins was right, this story was massive. Elderly men and women were being exploited by the very companies that existed to take care of them. The exploitation ranged from doctors giving patients treatments they didn't need, to doctors claiming to have visited and cared for patients they'd never actually seen, to doctors picking the most expensive treatment options possible. And all of it was resulting not just in elderly men and women being used for financial gain, but hundreds of millions of dollars being stolen yearly from the U.S. government. Unfortunately, the scope of Atkins' accusations turned out to be his undoing. He lost the case at the district level. I want to be clear about this, though. When I say he lost, I don't mean it was proven that McIntyre and Lockwood never did anything wrong and that the nursing home companies did not commit fraud. What I mean is that the court said Atkins didn't do everything he needed to do to meet the burden of proof. I could go more into the technical reasoning behind why Atkins lost the case, but I think it would probably put you to sleep. If you want an explanation, I'll just say this. Atkins took a shotgun approach. He accused a lot of big, powerful groups of committing fraud under something called the False Claims Act. Because he made a lot of accusations about a lot of people, he had a lot to prove. The court said he didn't prove it, that he didn't have the right evidence. Atkins followed this up by saying that actually he did have the necessary proof and he provided some more evidence. He just hadn't included it in the original paperwork. But the district court said it was too little too late and reached a judgment looking only at the evidence Atkins had originally submitted. But the story does not end there. Atkins appealed the decision, and the case was taken up by the 11th Circuit. Now, when a case reaches a federal circuit court, there's no more fact-finding, which means that nobody provides any more evidence. No witnesses are interviewed. No, the circuit court focuses on whether the district court, the one that decided originally, reached the right decision. Atkins lost the circuit court, too for some even more technical reasoning. After reading these decisions, my head was spinning a bit, so I wanted to get some more perspective. I contacted a couple of my lawyer friends. Remember how I said I almost went to law school and that that's where most of my friends ended up? I wasn't kidding. Three of my very best friends are all lawyers. I shot a couple of them an email with the two cases and asked them to take a look. My friend Shane got back to me first. Well, I've been reading uh, these cases that uh, Atkins brought against uh, McIntyre and Lockman. And yeah, they're, they're surprising. I think they're definitely worth like a second look. From his reading, Atkins lost because his lawyers mishandled the case. This was like if a studio had an amazing idea for a new movie, but then they hired Michael Bay to write the script. It wasn't the merits of the case that Atkins lost on. It wasn't because Atkins was necessarily wrong about anything he claimed. He lost primarily because of how his lawyers played the game. Shane said that if he had to guess, the money affected Atkins' judgment. I called this a key TM case earlier. This means in practical terms that if Atkins could show how the U.S. government was defrauded of $10 million, he'd receive $10 million as prize money. Atkins could have limited his accusations to just focus on Lockman and McIntyre, and he could have potentially won a modest but smaller amount of money. But he chose to target the healthcare corporations that run the nursing homes, too. Because if he could prove that they were in on it, and that this ran much deeper than just Lockman and McIntyre, he could stand to win way more money. 
For me personally, I can understand why Atkins brought in the healthcare corporations. If Lockman and McIntyre were doing what he says they were doing, it seems very unlikely that the healthcare corporations weren't at least somewhat aware of it. That's how wide-scale this thing was. I can't tell you what Dr. Atkins was thinking. I can't tell you whether he was motivated by the benevolent desire to see justice done or whether he was driven by money. What I can tell you is that, for me, Dr. Atkins' accusations were disturbingly plausible. What began this whole investigation was a rumor that a group of people needed help and that they couldn't protect themselves. In that instance, it was children. Here, Atkins was alleging that another group of people, elderly men and women with psychiatric conditions, needed help and were capable of protecting themselves. And it wasn't so outlandish to think that this could be happening in Alabama, either. In the early 2000s, Alabama was home to something called the Richard Scrooge Trial. This involved a healthcare company called HealthSouth, founded and led by a man named Richard Scrooge. The company was found guilty of billing for services it never provided, delivering poor care, treating patients without formal plans of care, and using unlicensed therapists. As a result, HealthSouth effectively stole millions and millions of dollars from the federal government. Dr. Atkins was, in essence, saying that the same thing was occurring in nursing homes across the state and potentially the entire country. After all this legal research, I contacted the journalist that wrote the original article. Her name is Stephanie, and she'd written it 18 years ago, but I was hoping she might remember something that could help. After a little doing, I found her and sent her a message on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, she didn't remember much, but she did tell me two things that I could follow up on. The first was about a website called Pacer.gov. I was going to ask you if you knew about Pacer.gov. You can pull... I. And if you don't know how to do it, I can pull the the docket sheet for you and you can see everything that's been filed and what happened in this case should be in there. And it's free. Anyone can sign up for pacer.gov. Maybe scanning through those documents would teach me something that wasn't in the court decisions. The second thing she told me about was a person. Um, Delane um, Mountain. His name is Delane Mountain, and he is a personal injury lawyer. I think he's retired now, and his son took over his practice. But he and his partner were excellent sources. They they weren't, I don't think they were involved in this case, but they, they know everybody there. And Delane is awesome. He was easy to find online. See Delane Mountain of Mountain and Mountain, a good old boy through and through. Delane went to law school in Alabama and had been a huge part of the Alabama legal scene ever since. I arranged a phone call with him. Hello? Hi, is this Delane? Yes, it is. He didn't turn up much either. I know that case was a while ago, and I... It, does it ring any, any bells with you at all? Do you, do you recall anything about that off the top of your head? It really doesn't. Uh... Yet again, the passage of time obfuscated our search, clouding memories and distorting facts. He did suggest reaching out to the lawyers who had represented the parties, though. There were so many attorneys in this case that that could take weeks, so I kept my search limited to the attorneys that represented Dr. Atkins or the United States. There were nine of them. A couple of times, as I've been reporting on this story, I've had a moment that felt straight out of a movie or a TV show. Something happened that was so uncanny, so bizarre, that it was as if it had been written into my life by someone else. I had one of these moments while I was researching the attorneys, you see, the first name I looked up was a guy named Ethan Mitchell. He was deceased as of 2013. 
Okay, that figures. I mean, this case was nearly 20 years old, after all. So I look up the next one. A guy named Justice Smith. Deceased as of 2017. Hmm, well, that's weird. Attorney number three, Holly DeMond. Deceased, 2014. Surely it's a coincidence. I mean, what are the chances? The fourth attorney, Michael Hertz. Deceased, 2012. Four attorneys on the original case all dead within five years of one another. I remember sitting in Leanne Connie's office with Jared beside me as I found each attorney. We're both big guys and we were somehow managing to share this somewhat small wooden desk. The last vestiges of the sunset were pouring through the blinds. On the fourth death, I looked at JR and I said what we were both thinking. You don't think this is some kind of conspiracy, do you? Dr. Atkins was accusing several multi-hundred million dollar corporations of some very bad things, and all of these attorneys had worked for either the government or Dr. Atkins. And I should say now, the other five attorneys were alive and well. It was just weird. And this wouldn't be the last movie moment I encountered, either. Of the five attorneys that were still alive, I managed to set up phone calls with two of them. The first is now working as an assistant U.S. attorney. The second has gone into private practice. Neither was very helpful. Next, Jaron had decided to try and find Dr. Atkins. From what I could tell, he was still living and practicing in Tuscaloosa, which was only about an hour away from us in Birmingham. Since Jaron's background check service had gotten us to Shay's home successfully, we figured it might find Dr. Atkins. So we punched in his name, and it gave us several addresses in Tuscaloosa, and again, several phone numbers. We made some calls and left some voicemails, but never heard back. So we made the drive out to Tuscaloosa. Apart from Jer almost running us off a bridge, the drive was uneventful. The first address our GPS took us to was no good. Turned out it was actually the address of a psychiatric hospital where Atkins worked. The next few addresses were a bust, too. We were about ready to pack up and go home, but decided to give one final listing a try. This last house was beautiful and expensive. It was in the kind of neighborhood where each home is made of some kind of designer brick and has several hundred feet of space for many neighbors. It looked like exactly the kind of place that a doctor might live. And then, as we were driving by the house, we saw Atkins on the mailbox. We parked and made our way to the front door, and then knocked. A woman answered. What followed was a strange, stilted conversation. We asked if Dr. Atkins was at home, and she said he wasn't. We asked when he might return. She did not know. We asked whether we could leave a name and a number. She asked why. It felt like Dr. Atkins and whoever this was, presumably his wife, were going through some difficulties in their relationship. But that's just me speculating based off of how she acted. Eventually, we convinced her to take a piece of paper with my name and number on it. She told us that she'd pass it along to him, but we were a little unsure whether that was true. Then, about 45 minutes later, as we were driving back, a text message came through. I spoke with my husband. He's not interested in speaking with you and asks that you please quit calling those numbers you've been calling. That night, as I was sipping decaf coffee and ruminating frustratedly on Atkins unwilling to speak to us, I came across something that I'd missed before. It was in the district court case filings on pacer.gov, the website that Stephanie, the journalist, told me about. 
It was an affidavit from a woman named Tammy Moore. It said that she had been the office manager and chief billing officer for Yap Psychiatric, the company that doctors McIntyre and Lockman provided services through. And in this affidavit, she testified against the two doctors, saying almost exactly what Dr. Atkins had said, that Lockman and McIntyre, with Anita's help, were regularly committing billing fraud, and that Tammy had seen it with her own eyes. If Atkins wouldn't talk to us, finding this Tammy Moore might be the next best thing. It hadn't failed us yet, so we went back to our trusty background report generator and once again began making calls and driving all over town. I was rewatching the first season of True Detective the other day. It's one of my favorite TV shows. It's about these two detectives, as you'd guess from the name, who are living in Louisiana, and they're investigating the murder of a young woman. They realize it's connected to other killings, and a massive conspiracy begins unraveling. I was struck while watching it about how much time the detectives spend just trying to get in touch with various people. A lot of the show is Marty and Rust going house to house, leaving notes, making phone calls, and there's never any guarantee that the people they're looking for will be of any real help. I find myself thinking a lot about that show as I report on the story, about how a lot of quote-unquote investigating is just busy work. I'm a little hesitant to admit this, but I've done my best to be honest with you so far, so I'll say it. It's often boring. It's not engaging going through social media pages of the fifth Tammy Moore you've seen that day, or knocking on the door of a total stranger, knowing they probably aren't who you're looking for. The desire to see justice done is incorporeal. Those people that may have been harmed by Lockman McIntyre, the kids being kept at a forest compound, or the elderly men and women receiving less than adequate care, they feel abstract, impersonal. The latest data shows that nearly half of the murders that occur in the United States go unsolved. And even though this isn't a murder investigation, the work I've done in this story does make me wonder whether the boredom, the monotony, the inconvenience of tracking down possible leads might ever influence whether a crime gets solved, whether sometimes criminals might go uncaught or unpunished, not because of a lack of evidence, but because of a lack of trying. I've felt this compulsion myself, to cut corners, to turn over most rocks, but not all of them. I think this stat especially makes me wonder, because there's an alleged murder in this case, and more than one person does die in this story. But I'll have to tell you about that later. Where was I? Oh yes, I was battling this temptation to try but not too hard as Jared and I looked for Tammy. This was now our seventh or eighth attempt of trying to locate someone, and I was tired of it. Though we were getting pretty good at it by this point. We had our voicemail script down to a science. Hi, I'm an independent journalist, and I was hoping to speak to so-and-so about a story I'm working on. We even had these little pseudo-business cards that we left to the addresses we visited. Despite our experience, we hadn't turned up much. It was our third night of searching. We'd just gone by a little house in Alabaster, a town maybe 30 minutes away from Birmingham, and about five minutes from where I grew up. We'd left a note. The boy we talked to said that there was a Tammy Moore who lived there, but she wasn't home. He had no idea whether she'd ever worked for a couple of psychiatrists. So Jerry and I drove home, put a frozen pizza in the oven, and began talking about how much longer we ought to devote to looking for Tammy. She could offer a lot, 
first-hand information whether Lachman and McIntyre had been committing fraud, but she probably would not know why they'd been living in the middle of a forest, much less why they left it the way they did. I was in favor of giving up on Tammy and moving on to other leads. And then my phone started ringing. It was an anonymous number, like when you dial star 67 before you call. I answered, and I heard a gruff female voice ask, Who is this? Caught off guard, I said, It's Josh, and I asked whether I was speaking with Tammy. No answer. And then, Why are you looking for me? How did you get this address? I wasn't sure what to say. I mean, coming out and telling her that we'd put our name into a background report generator didn't seem like it was going to make a strong first impression. I stumbled over my words. I told her, well, I was working on a story about these two doctors, and from what I could tell, she might have worked for them, that I was just hoping to talk to her about what she'd said in an affidavit she gave, and then silence, a long silence, probably 10 seconds. Finally, can you come back now, like right now? I said, sure. The voice asked, when can you be here? I told her, probably in about 20 minutes. So she said okay, and then immediately hung up. Jer and I ran, and I mean ran, to my car, jumped in, and I started pulling out of my Aunt Connie's driveway. Well, we just got some really big news, some really big news. We went to a residence, we thought there was a good chance that the Tammy Moore that we were after was living at, and she just called us back, and we have all but confirmed this is her, the Tammy Moore who had made an affidavit for the McIntyre Lockman case that was filed by Patrick Atkins, the Tammy Moore. It wasn't until we'd been in the car for a few minutes that we realized we had no idea what we were walking into. The cryptic, somewhat hostile phone call was not welcoming, and we didn't know whether this was even the right Tammy. Or if it was her, what if she was somehow still in touch with Lockman and McIntyre? That seemed unlikely since she'd testified against them, but it was possible. So I sent the address to my brother and turned on my iPhone location sharing with a few key people, just in case. We pulled up to the house and decided to leave our recording equipment in the car first. We figured we ought to feel out the situation before we busted that out. Then I saw a bonfire blazing in one of those metal outdoor fire pits. Semi-circled around it was a group of five middle-aged women who were laughing and drinking they waved us over and they told us that they just ordered enough Domino's pizza for everyone. This was much warmer of a welcome than I was expecting. Tammy was wearing jeans and a t-shirt with a metal band logo on the front. She had short, slightly graying hair and looked to be in her early 50s. She was sitting by her partner, Raven. The other women were friends of theirs. One of them was the gruff-voiced person that I spoke to on the phone. And they were dying to know who we were and why we wanted to talk to Tammy. So we told our side of the story, about the lawsuit, about the compound, and that it was Tammy's turn. She seemed thrilled about the whole thing. You see, it turns out that she's thought about Lachman and McIntyre for years, ever since that lawsuit in 2003. Actually, I should just let Tammy tell you. She was intimately involved with their whole operation. I build their inpatient services and I build their outpatient services. This means that she had eyes on everything they did. The first thing that alarmed her, or caught her attention, was when they built care for the patient that was already dead, the incident that I told you about before. And everything was fine till I got my first EOB that had a code on it that's a CO13. And that is date of death precedes date of service. 
So when I asked about it, they just said it was a clerical error. And then there was Dr. McIntyre's schedule. He would come to the hospital like at 5 in the morning, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock. He's making rounds on psych patients who are in bed. Most psychiatrists round between 9 and 10 when the patients are up, had their meds, or whatever. But he was making rounds as early as 5.30 and 6, and I would see him when I would come in, he would be leaving. On top of this weird schedule, Dr. McIntyre was seeing a huge number of patients, like so many patients that it seemed almost impossible he had the time to see them all. You have to understand, he's seeing like 200 people. I mean, he's not just going to one facility. He had multiple facilities that he went to. Multiple. The day-to-day operations of how McIntyre and Lockman ran things was so strange that eventually the other staff started asking Tammy about it. The people who worked there, the other folks who worked up front, there were conversations with them because they would ask me, you know, what sense does this make for us to be here so late? How can we see this many people? How, you know, what's going on? That kind of stuff. The longer Tammy spent working for McKenzie and Lockman, the stranger things got. As time went on, more and more things were starting to look suspicious. Dr. McIntyre's early morning rounds, billing all these people, seeing more CO13s of people dying. Just like with Dr. Atkins' allegations, Anita Weiss shows up in Tammy's story, too. And again, just like with Atkins, Tammy says that Anita knew all about the shady stuff going on and was a part of it. Anita was calling nursing homes, getting all of the information, writing everything up, and they would have everything prepared so that when Dr. McIntyre went there, he pretty much just had to walk in. I mean, I never went with him to a nursing home, so I don't know what he did, but I know that everything he needed was gathered Monday through Friday. A few months into this, she had a phone call. I have to meet a gentleman, and I can't recall his name, and I meet him at a park in Tuscaloosa, and he is with the State Department, Alabama Medicaid, and he has a folder of papers, and as I look through them, I can tell him, that's not Dr. McIntyre's signature, that is not his signature, that is not his signature. I can give him everything he needs, and I answer all of his questions. This clandestine meetup proceeded an even more dramatic turn. I'm off work one day and Gloria calls my house. Gloria was a co-worker of Tammy's. Raven answers the phone and she says she needs to speak to me because the men with guns are at the office. So I get ready. Raven drives me up to Fairfield and when I walk in, I would say there are 10 to 15 FBI agents there removing files. And that's what's happening. Dr. Lockman is there, Dr. McIntyre is there, and files are going out the door. Answer a few questions, you know, who are you, what do you do, blah, blah, blah. I end up going to the FBI building and sit down with the FBI. I answer their questions. Remember earlier how I said that there was more than one FBI raid that I learned about in this story? Well, this is the second one. I'm not sure whether the raid Skinner witnessed at the compound took place because of this or if these are two separate events. Somehow, none of this, the Alabama Medicaid investigation or the FBI raid, 
led to any sort of legal punishment. And the guy that was in charge, older gentleman, I have no idea if he's still there or not, tells me that pretty much there's not anything that can be done because the code says the physician typically, typically spends 15 to 30 minutes with the patient. Typically, and that was the end of that. Nothing was done, nothing was charged, nothing occurred. Let me break that down for you a little bit. From what Tammy saw, McIntyre was seeing way too many patients to have enough time to provide adequate care for any of them. And the visits were occurring early in the morning or late at night. But because of the code that he was billing under, the Department of Justice weren't able to act on any of this because the language of the billing code had enough wiggle room that this wasn't a prosecutable offense. I'm not sure why the DOJ didn't act on the other allegations that Atkins made. Tammy wasn't sure either. She'd never even spoken to Atkins about the cookie-cutter diagnosis being given to multiple patients that had supposedly been seen, or in the neglect of patients that Lockman and McIntyre did visit. Maybe there just wasn't enough evidence, or maybe Atkins was just wrong. I'm not sure. Tammy, to this day, can't believe that Lockman and McIntyre avoided legal repercussions for all of this. My reaction to all of it was I truthfully thought they were going to be arrested and that their license were going to be revoked, and none of that happened. She also did not think it was likely that their behavior had changed any, even after she quit working for them after the FBI raid. Well, I have checked on Lockman and McIntyre at various times throughout just to see if they were still practicing, what was going on with them, where were they, because just to see if anything had ever happened to them. And they're still practicing. They're still billing insurance. They're still getting paid. And they're still running the same business the way they've always ran it. As we were wrapping up, Raven said something that struck me. I don't think with them it was a malicious watch what we're... I really think they thought what they were doing was okay. That doesn't make it okay. But because they seem like genuinely... I promise if you met them, you would think they were nice people. And, and then we learned that that really, I mean, maybe they were nice people, but what they were doing was not. One thing that frustrates me about America is our seeming inability to perceive nuance. We've become a country of extremes, black and white, no gray allowed. You can see this in any number of areas. The news coverage of political figures or of COVID-19 when I heard Raven say this, that McIntyre and Lockman didn't come across as bad people, I realized that I hadn't been allowing for any gray either. In my head, I had this picture of the two doctors, a picture which portrayed them as either wholly good and simply misunderstood, or as wholly evil and evading justice. Talking with Tammy and Raven challenged this conception I had. Maybe Lockman and McIntyre weren't bad people, Maybe they did really care about their patients. They just cut some corners. Maybe they took on too much work because they needed to make more money. Maybe Atkins had been wrong about what he'd seen, and his own desire for financial gain had caused him to exaggerate. Tammy couldn't speak to the abandoned compound, either. The time she knew our two doctors was before they'd even lived out there, most likely. But her account made me wonder whether maybe the two of them had not hurt anyone, maybe there had been nothing mysterious going on in the compound, whether maybe there was a reasonable explanation for why they had been living out in the woods and for why they left. 
But then I found out about Dr. McKinsey losing his medical license and about why. And that destroyed any hope I had that these two doctors had simply been misunderstood. Tune into the next episode because I'll tell you about that and a whole lot more. Why They Left is written by me, reported on by myself, Shay Stevenson, Luke Webb, and Jer Leslie. Luke acts as our executive producer, and Shay wrote our original theme song. <laughs>